Um, well, welcome back to the Retail Smarts podcast. Today with us, we have Julie Mathers, who is the founder and CEO of Flora and Fauna. Um, and today we're just, we're going to have a chat with Julie about you know, where you've been and, and how you got to where you are. And, and you've just got such an interesting story. And, and for our listeners who don't know, Julie is one of our board members and is absolutely dedicated to our industry and works tirelessly, particularly within the e-commerce and digital space but it's got incredible experience in bricks and mortar retail. So welcome to our podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Dom. Really, really delighted to be here. Julie, how did you start in retail? Okay, so how did I start in retail? Well, it was actually, you know what, it was 30 years ago, if I go right, 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 right back. And it was when um, my dad said to me at the age of 15, you need to get a job. (laughs) And so, like, you need to get a part-time job. And he found me a job in the local bakery. And so off I went for an interview and that was the start of it. And it is, it's after the job I currently do, it is my second most favorite job. And I worked for two years there whilst I was at school studying and then before I went to uni. And it was amazing because it was one of, it's one of those times, I mean, it was before any form of smartphone. or. Um, so I can remember when I first went in, they said, right, you need to learn the prices of everything in the, in the shop. So, and I can even remember them now, like 52p for a white tin. Yeah, I can remember them now. But, and, and I love maths. Like I love, love maths. So I loved it because people come in, they go, right, we want to have six vanilla pastries and blah, 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 blah. Mm. And it was just fun because they also, it, it, it's where I really learned, I think, about the customer. So for me, retail is crazy passionate about the customer and about experiences and about bricks and mortar. And that's that was my first experience. I just loved it. I then went to uni to study engineering. I knew I didn't want to be an engineer. And then after uni, after a very small failed um, period in accounting when for Deloitte, when I went, I don't want to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I went back to retail. And then I ended up working for John Lewis department store in the UK on, on their grad scheme. So that's kind of how I got how I got started, and, and from there on in, I've for the last oh gosh, when did I start in John Lewis? 98, 98, 99. For the last twenty two years since then, I've just been um, just been retail, completely retail. Whether that be in retailers or in consultancy, working on retail, or in private equity for a couple of years as well. And where do you think your passion for sustainability came from? Do you think it's that um, that engineering component um, or am I just like clutching at straws here did, or did you come across something at some point in time? Like some people talk about having an allergy or turn their mind to this kind of sustainable way of life or natural way of living. I mean, how did you come across kind of that world? I've always been a really curious person. When I was, you know what, when I was, um, gosh, 19. So when I was doing engineering, I had to go and do um, like um, industry experience. And so everyone went off to like Schlumberger or AstraZeneca. We use the, you know, whatever to go and do experience. And I actually took myself off to Spain for two months to go and build solar cookers. Really? Yeah. So I do really random weird things. So I took myself off there and and I was basically living in um, an alternative technology site. So it was super cool because this was 95, I think. And the site was completely built on solar power, all had its own irrigation system. It was completely veggie because what you grew, you ate. An amazing place to be. And I think that's probably where I first started thinking about sustainability, although I probably didn't know I was thinking about it then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the years, it's become 
more obvious in the last 12 years to me how important it is from a business perspective. Um, I worked for a company called Bauger Group in the UK. They're a private equity company and owned, had a lot of investments on the UK high street. And one of the, so I was an investment manager looking after part of the portfolio, but part of one of my jobs, which is kind of separate to that, was to look after the, as it was called then, CSR strategy for the portfolio. And that's when I really got involved within the sustainability, things like um, plastic bags, uh, community involvement, all of that, all of that kind of thing. And it was very much in its infancy because this was 15 years ago, very much in its infancy. But that's, I suppose, from a business perspective, when I started thinking about it. And then over the years, I just went, well, why don't I do something about this? Because I just thought we weren't moving quick enough. Mm. And I thought, well, the only way I'm going to move quicker is if I just do something. And was it just that doing, I think, that, that, that was the driver? Or, you know, did you have that, you know, moment where something happens and you're, you know, so distressed by something that you saw or something that you experienced that you were like, okay, this is the moment. This is the, the moment where I actually have to commit and make a change. So there was the moment when I went, I'm going to start Flora and Fauna. And that was kind of a linked moment, I suppose. I was buying a lipstick and I didn't know what was in the lipstick. I knew, because the ingredients made no sense. And I didn't know, is this tested on animals or I just knew nothing about the origins of this lipstick. And I just thought, this is really, we make it really hard. And I think there's a lot of greenwashing in the beauty industry or just a lot of lack, a lack of transparency in the beauty industry. So that was 2014. And that was the prompter for me to start Flora and Fauna. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the moment, and I literally I can remember I can remember coming out of the store and and saying to my husband, Tom, this is what this is what we need to do, and then and then it just went from there, and then partway through the F and F journey, because we started and you know we're doing like two orders a day if we're lucky. It was like, and it was very exciting when we got those two orders. Like it was ridiculously exciting. And it was even more exciting when they weren't from family or friends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, what we did at the start was we bought Aussie Post satchels because if you bought them in packs of a hundred, you got a better price. Mm. So we bought those at the start. And this is how businesses start. Um, We bought them a start and then we packed them up and then we put a box into the satchel. And it was July 2016 when I just went, what are we doing? And we'd got to the point where we'd grown enough to have an Aussie Post collection and so forth, so on and so forth. I said, what are we doing? Why are we putting these in these satchels? So we went, right, let's do a trial for, in, it was in Plastic Free July, let's do a trial in Plastic Free July of just not using the satchel. And of course, it was totally fine and we didn't need the satchel at all. So then we just stopped from there on in. But that's that was the moment that it was a bit of an aha moment for me when I just went, what are we doing? We, we, we shouldn't be using this. We need to be making better decisions as a business. And it was really from then that it started snowballing because my brain started thinking in a very different way. Um, and with that different thought process, I mean, did you think, I mean, obviously there was already that initial thought around what's in this lipstick and this is what our brand's going to be about, but you know, d- did that kind of change in your thinking elevate to how am I going to connect with, with my customer and what are their views on this? And, and how did you determine what the values of your customers were other than the fact that you knew they were shopping with you for a reason? Yeah. You know, this is, it's a really, really cool question because it is something that when you start a business, I don't think 
when you start a business that you truly know what your purpose and values are until you've actually gone on the journey for a bit. Because then to your point, then you're talking to your customers and your customers tell you, they literally tell you who you are and they tell you what your values are. So, and you you kind of end up doing a little bit of a dance with them almost. And, and we've really engaged our customers on, on the way. So we have a very cool Facebook community and we talk to them all the time. We ask them questions, we have surveys, we blah, blah, blah. But we're just very close to our customers. So we have very much taken them on our journey and they have also taken us on their journey. And it has been a partnership as we've grown, I feel. And so it was, it was probably, oh, maybe three or four, probably four years ago where I really defined, and I remember doing this, I really defined what our purpose was, which is to help ev- everyone make better choices. It kind of sounds easy almost to like do that, but it's really not mm. it's really hard to define a purpose. And it was very, very important for me to go, our purpose is to help everyone make better choices. It's not to help a small select few make the best choice. My view, my view very much is if we want to drive change, we need to help the masses drive a little bit of change, not help the converted drive more change because we need to drive change at a big scale. And so it's very important that we help everyone and it is better choices. They may not necessarily be the ultimate best choice because probably the ultimate best choice is that none of us ever travel again. And we live in our, in our homes and we shop locally and we don't, when we travel everywhere by bike and blah, 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 you know, that's, that's probably the best choice for our planet, but we're all on a journey and we need to help people on that journey. So that's kind of, um, so yeah, so we very much grown with our community. It, it's cool actually, because we have a, we have a category on our website called, well, no, it's not called anymore, but it was called fashion. It's been irking me for ages because I'm going, but we don't sell fashion. (laughs) But underneath it, we've got vegan bags, we've got bamboo underwear, we've got phone cases, we've got a few necklaces. It's just, it's like a mush of stuff, Mm. but it's all eco stuff. And I'm kind of going, fashion's the wrong name because it implies it's something that we're not and also implies we're selling dresses and stuff and we don't. And I was really struggling with it. So I actually went out to our Facebook group and said to our community, what do you think? What do you think we should call it? And we had about 80 responses from people just giving us their views. Some of them had even Photoshopped it and done screenshots. And, and then one, one lady actually went, thanks so much for asking us this and letting us be part of the solution. That is really, really, especially when they're so committed to the cause, you know, yeah. that they own it. They've got some ownership in the business, which you, you know, you don't see many brands being able to say that they have that much engagement. When I was in New York before the whole world shut down for, <laughs> um, <laughs> for Big Show, which is a really large retail show, we visited a part of New York Retail Week, a place called Package Free. Have you ever heard of Package Free? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so we did a big tour and they showed us all of their amazing products where, you know, you take your jars in and you pick up yeah. your shampoo and conditioner and how they only stock things that can be reused or completely biodegradable and you take all of your own waste and they, they actually turn away suppliers that don't comply with their packaging requirements. Um, and I think it even went down to they were using, like they had, I think, biodegradable vibrators to <laughs> yeah. you know, like different versions of condoms to sanitary product, like everything, like that. there was nothing you couldn't get. 
how far do you go in terms of your suppliers and and bringing them on the journey of the business as well when you you're going through that yeah. big you know this is we're going to educate everyone um and our community is going to hold us to a particular standard yeah it's it's what we've done over the years is we've deranged brands quite happily we, and we make a we're so driven by values that um, if a brand is bought by a parent company where the values don't align, we derange it. And we deranged two brands that were two of our best sellers. But our absolute commitment is to our purpose, our values, and our community. And if we move outside of that in any which way, then we're not sticking to what is our purpose. The team are brilliant. Like the team at FNF are just brilliant. And they really hold us accountable because if they see things coming into the warehouse and they go, this is not okay, they'll tell us like happily. So there was one of our brands who kept sending stuff in plastic. Mm. We have a conversation with them and go, come on, think of some alternatives. But what we did last year, we launched something called Take It Back. Basically any suppliers that send us plastic, it gets shipped back to them, but it doesn't get shipped back to them. It gets shipped back to the CEO so that they can actually see the impact of what they do. And mm. we don't, we, and we have no barriers here in terms mm. of that. Like, we don't go, oh, don't send it to them. It's like, no, no, send, anyone, anyone at all, send it back because we have to drive change. And then if they're ultimate complete repeat offenders and we can't get anywhere, then we ultimately derange them. Because we've had a lot of brands for a long time, um, some of them are on a bit of a journey. But what we do with brands coming on board now is we have a supplier code of conduct and a supplier assessment. And a big part of that is all around values and our values and our purpose and talking about their packaging materials to the point where some of the brands will contact us and go, we use this tape. Is this okay? Mm-hmm. To, to us. Wow. And, um, and, it, and it's great because it's really starting the conversation and mm. we want to start it at the start um, because if we have a conversation with them, then they hopefully will have a conversation with their suppliers and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've really tried to create this ripple effect um, to, try and, to try and improve things. And we've had, since we launched Take It Back, we've had about 20% less plastic come in. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. How do you, I mean, if you've got to take a brand off your site that's been there for a very long time, including your bestsellers, I mean, how do you manage your customer? So one of the things we are is we're really positive. Clearly, we'll never defame or any of that stuff. Mm, That would be bad. We're quite upfront about it. We just go, look, they're just not right for us anymore. And we have strict criteria in which we work with. And um, if a brand doesn't meet that criteria, then sorry, we don't sell them. And our community, they're amazing because they trust us deeply. Mm. And so we don't try to take that trust lightly. And I think they thank us for making great decisions on their behalf. Some of the feedback we get from people is, it's brilliant because I don't have to look at the ingredients or the sourcing mm-hmm. or the history because we've done all of that work and they really value the work that we have done. So, you know, we and we obviously manage all of these things really well, um, particularly from a brand perspective as well, from a supplier perspective. But we are prepared to make those decisions if if we need to. 
I mean, if you're a business and, and look, there's, you know, obviously so many out there that have never really even considered this concept of sustainability, which we know now, certainly in our membership is within the top five concerns of, of most brands because they're all of their consumers are demanding it in some form, whether it's plastics, whether it's, you know, the way that they're posting, you know, how they're doing it, um, whether it's around diversity or equality or all those things. I mean, what's your advice for a business that is never really considered the sustainability journey? Where do they start? Yeah, start small because I think it is really overwhelming. A lot of people and a lot of my peers have said to me, I don't know where to start. And it is very, very overwhelming for people. So I always think, you know, Rome wasn't building a day. Packaging is a great place to start because you can kind of get your head around it. There are so many options now as well. So you might just go from using your general sticky tape to using craft tape. That's brilliant. That's a that's a move forward. I, I was talking to someone in fashion and instead of the, the plastic garment covers that you get, instead of using those, they're actually now compostable ones. So there are some great alternatives. And, and I would just encourage anyone to just start exploring them. Just start exploring those alternatives. Start thinking about a few things they can do. Obviously, we're not in offices, many of us at the moment, but when you're in the office, think about things like your waste. Where does your waste go? We, we um, I suppose, pay, pay more than your average person for our waste F&F &F, um, to be recycled properly. So, and we, research, we had to research about, I think, um, one of our team contacted about 20 different waste mm. providers to find the one who would actually um, do the best job for us. Um, so, there's a bit of work involved, but... It, start with some of the easy things that you can see every day. And that, and that might be things that your customers don't necessarily see, but it just gets you on your journey. I'd also say, ask your team. There's invariably, one of, probably the, one of the best things to do is to have a bit of a workshop with some of the team, people who are interested and get people's thoughts. There's going to be heaps of people who in, in any team who are interested in sustainability to some degree the best thing you can do is ask, ask, ask your team and engage them. And then that's obviously the small end, but I mean, what's the, what's the big scary goal in terms of sustainability for flora and fauna? I mean, what's an, what, what would you love to do and, and what are you working towards? So, so for us, I would like us, so at the moment we're completely carbon, carbon offset. So completely carbon offset. I would like us to be completely plastic free when it comes to so what I what I want to see is that we do not put any plastic into waste basically so we've set ourselves that goal so we are completely plastic free business because invariably there still is plastic that comes in it can be small things and you just go god I didn't even think that was that so we spend quite a lot of time looking at our rubbish going, going where does that where does that come from but it, it it's a big journey to get that done and to get others to go on that journey with you um that's the big one for me and then also us giving back more than we take um i've always said from a personal standpoint i want to leave this planet having given more than i've you know being a contributor rather than a whatever the other one is <laughs> exactly yeah yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the same about us as a business. Well, I mean, we do heaps of stuff with the community anyway. We had a goal. I had a goal two years ago that 18% of our employees would have a disability because 18% of Australia has disability. So to be truly representative, that's what we should 
be doing as an employer. And actually over 20% of our team live with a disability. That's kind of, I suppose, the big, the big hairy, hairy piece. And then just giving back a lot more as well. So when you're a startup and growing, it's difficult to give a lot back because you have no money. But when you get into your stride a bit, you can actually do a lot more with that. So I'm talking to a couple of charities at the moment where effectively some of our products that we create give back. So yeah, so there's lot there's lots of stuff going on, but it is to be an enormous positive force for change. And I think that, you know, certainly the trends are showing that that consumer activism element means that this is what is expected. And in fact, if you look at, you know, all the, the trust surveying that happens across the world, evidence shows that the majority of people believe that it is actually up to private corporates to make these changes and to do these things because they have such a um, distrust in things like the media or the government or you know, in any of those things. So it comes down to what a corporate's going to do. And we know also that, I guess, where they get it wrong. So where somebody makes a mistake in this space, consumers now punish you for a period of six months and they'll only return if you apologize and you own the mistake as well. So, and it runs deep, you know, it's not just packaging now, it's about, you know, representation, as you say, it's about making sure you've got a diverse employment space. But just on your goal around obviously disability and, and the fact that you are now sitting at 20%, you know, we know that there is a certainly a significant lack of representation, particularly of disability on places like boards or throughout retail. Um, and what is your advice in terms of engaging with or finding employees that have a disability and bringing them into your workplace, particularly where we know that physical disabilities have a high percentage of employment and, and mental disabilities don't. And of course, then there is the mental health component as well, um, yeah, which isn't yeah. always looked at as a disability, but can become one or can be debilitating. Yeah. Um, so how do you engage in that space? Oh, yeah. I so many questions. <laughs> I mean, mental, mental health is so important and it's not something we think enough about, particularly at the moment when you know, we really, really need to be thinking about that as employers at the moment. I put something on LinkedIn, actually. It was a really amazing person who I went to see. And I this is when we traveled. Um, it was in, I think it was in Amsterdam at the World Retail Congress. And she was phenomenal. She was a little person, which is the right terminology. Yes. <laughs> and she, she was just Fantastic. She said, look, I do not expect anyone to change their retail experience for me. I don't expect anyone to do that. But what I do expect is if I come into a store and I clearly can't reach hangers or whatever, I expect someone to approach me and offer me help. And she said, mm -hmm. if someone says to me, and it, it, I can remember it quite vividly, she said, if someone says to me, look, I appreciate that this store is not great for you, so how can I help you? Can I get anything off that? And she goes, I'd be totally fine with that. She goes, the problem that she has is that she goes into a store and everyone's scarpers because no one knows how to deal with this. So I think there's two things. I think there's one, we need to train our team, whether that be customer care, whether that be in-store team members, we need to train them in terms of how do we manage people yeah. with disabilities? Yeah. Yeah. And we need from websites, my gosh, there's so many things. From websites, we need to make sure that they are accessible. Um, and I know ours at Florent Fauna needs to be way better. So I say that knowing that, that ours is not perfect, it needs to be better. From So there's a couple of also recruitment firms that you can use as well. So we've used Nova, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what's great about Nova is we've had people approach this from different ways. What's great about Nova is somebody will actually have a caseworker. So they'll actually help integrate them into the business so that someone doesn't come into your business and is just left flapping with no support. They make sure that they get the support, but they also help other team members, particularly when it comes to intellectual disabilities. Mm. They'll help other team members transition and, and work with those team because it can be quite confronting for lots of people. Mm. Um, so we've we've worked with Nova and then we've also there's one lady I after seeing this woman talk about her experience in a retail store I put something on LinkedIn and I said come on call to arms everyone needs to sort of just think differently about this and anyway someone contacted me and said I I am a friend of someone you know and my uh, my friend's daughter or my daughter um, she's just finished year 12 she didn't get her HSC but she finished school and she can't get a job or even an interview anywhere Mm. got an intellectual disability anyway we brought her in it was a very different kind of interview it's just like you know what do you like doing on the weekend and she started working with us as four hours in the warehouse and she was super quiet she's now up to five days a week in the warehouse and she is sassy (laughs) (laughs) she is super sassy she's she's frequently tells me how it is and I love it and I think what has been very rewarding because I think this is also this is great for the for the person but it's also super rewarding for for you as an employer and for the rest of the team as well I have learned so much from her and she we give everyone their birthday off and she came in on a birthday and I said why are you in it's your birthday she goes no because I this is my family Hmm. um and you you also give them so much in terms of giving them a really great team to be part of, and I think that shouldn't be taken lightly. So there's so there's so many good things that come out of out of doing this, rather than just seeing people as as numbers on a spreadsheet. Absolutely, and I think you know where we look at things like diversity thinking and and the idea that you're meant to have those seven different problem solving minds at a table. The perspectives that you get from somebody that has you know, a different experience in life. The details they see in things that we don't even notice can be so incredibly important, especially with you know, a business like yours that is focusing on what's going in the bin, how much plastic is there, what's in your products. I mean, and, and we as at the NRA, we do a whole raft of work with um, another provider called Help that works with all sorts of or different types of people with lots of different types of skill sets and they place them into all different types of industry from retail to meatworks to engineering to all sorts of things. And, you know, they've got this incredible um, workspace where you can go and you can meet some of the candidates amongst other things. And I, I guess just the diversity in jobs and skill sets, you're not necessarily expecting to see because there is certainly stigma and perception and, you know, unconscious bias that sits in this space. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that everybody has a place in, in retail and that we do operate like a family. And I think that's, you know, such an important message because as, as business owners, we have so much more that we can offer um, the community in so many different spaces, whether it's, you know, obviously sustainability or just simply engagement with different parts of the community. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's just more retail, isn't it? 
amazing industry to be part of. Yeah, that's it. And you, yeah. there's nothing you can't do, right? Like you can yeah. start, as you say, at a bakery and, you know, end up owning your own online business and managing a community that's Photoshopping all sorts of things to you. It's, <laughs> that's exactly what we want to hear. I actually, myself, I started, um, my first job was at McDonald's, oh, yeah. um, which is also one of my favourites. So, you know, do you want fries with that? It's probably <laughs> why I've learned how to sell. I can upsell anything because <laughs> it was drilled into me. And you know what drives me nuts now? I go to McDonald's and they don't do it anymore. Do they not? They don't upsell you. No, no, no. Why not? No. They just stopped. I don't, I don't know. They've just stopped asking if you want fries with that or you want something else with that. Either that or the franchisees. Um, not that I'm experiencing are not training their workers as well as they used to. Because you had like you had the steps. So yeah. you when you talk about you memorized all the pricing, there yeah. was the, you know, you had your 10 steps to serve the customer. And yeah, and I like, you know, you still remember the steps. Yeah. yeah. But Maccas has some of the best training possible, right? Yeah. Incredible, incredible training, definitely. Yeah. definitely. And also they they do really well at succession planning, which as retailers we aren't particularly good at. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's something I just I spend a lot of time talking about because we've got a massive skills shortage at the moment. We're really bad at growing our retail workers um, through our businesses. We get them in, but we don't take them through. Um, and it, it's really about kind of changing the perception of, you know, retail as a career and, and also building those um, pathways, I think, to growth as you've done, um, you know, yeah. with the work you were just talking about. But I mean, how important is training in your business? Oh, really important. And it's, and a lot of it is, um, oh, it's a variety, really. A lot of it is on the job, but it is, it is crucial for what we do. We're quite a flat team. Mm-hmm. And I think how we, what we have done, yeah, a good job of is, is train as much as possible. And then some, but also support because it's mm-hmm. part of it is training, but then it's also just support and coaching. Yes. Um, and I think that's really key. So, and also listening to your team, we've just had some brilliant start in the marketing team. She's great. And she is super ambitious and she's just said, Hey, I can do more. And I love the fact that she's putting a hand up and I've gone, okay, great. Well, nothing's off limits here. So I'm going to give you that bit as well. Mm. And, and she's had no experience of that, but who cares? Because everyone starts somewhere. So yeah. we've just kind of got her into learning a few new things. And then really you've got to look after your team and you've got to keep them excited and motivated. And if they're driven people, like keep their funnel full. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, because if you look at the studies around young people in employment and, you know, when they shift and when they move and things like that, and there's this perception that um, particularly that young women move because they want to have children or they're looking for something, but that's actually not the case. The studies show that the reason young women in particular move is because they're not provided with sufficient mentoring or guidance in that transition to taking the next step. So yeah. then they they leave. So yeah, that yeah. that mentoring component aside from the training component is, you know, it's that connection piece, right? It's the, I want you to know me. I want to be challenged. I want to be heard. I want to be seen kind of thing Um, that, you know, our millennials get a really hard rap for because they kind of want everything now. But as you say, who cares if you don't have the experience, let's give you the challenge and see what happens. Um, And you never know what you're going to get, right? Well, that's right. And, you know, and if you fail, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You've learned. You've learned. Yeah. It's totally fine to fail because if you don't, you're probably not going to learn. But if you fail, you're not going to do it again. Yeah. So I, 
I'm totally fine with people sort of mucking up. Most of the time we'll, we'll kind of catch it because we have good approval processes in place. So no one's ever going to send an email out to 300,000 people yeah. with, without, without, to be quite frank, me seeing it because I look at every bit of comms that goes mm-hmm. out. But if the process to get that email, you sort of make errors along the way. Brilliant. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very passionate about mentoring and it has been a really hard journey for women in general to get yeah. to, um, I get very passionate about it. Um, in fact, just as a real side note, so I'm doing a speaking thing and, and I spoke earlier to someone and he said to me, he goes, Oh, great. So he goes, you've got a child, a child. And I said, yeah, yeah I've got two little boys. And he goes, great. Well, I will describe you as a mother with two boys. Then. Oh. I know, I know. So I just went, I said, nope. And I, and I was in a bit of a fired up mood anyway. And I just went, okay, so would you describe yourself as that? Or would you describe a man as that? And he goes, oh, yeah, no, really good point. And I said, good. So don't describe me as that. Um, I said, unless you would unless you would describe a man as that, then please don't do that. And he goes, oh, I was just trying to make it a bit more personal and stuff. And I said, fine, say that I go running on the weekend. I don't care. But um, we've got to sort this out. And so I'm, I'm, I, get, I can get very fired up about that stuff. Ah, uh, look, and, and, you know, I have the same experience. I was recently on a panel. I was the only woman on a full-male panel. And when they introduced me, they introduced me as having just had a small child. I didn't get, it wasn't a congratulations on the birth of your son. Um, it was, oh, and she's the mother of a small child. So, you know, kudos for you for being on a panel um, and for ma- maintaining your CEO uh, status. Yeah. Like, honestly, it is, yeah. you know, look. It is. It's, it's something that just happens all the time. And, it, you know, as he said, oh, I just wanted to make you more personable. Being a mother does not <laughs> necessarily make me, it's not who you are. I mean. Exactly. Yeah, there's many facets of of who yeah. Julie is, and it's not you know it's not just that. Well, your, and on, yeah. on the because he because he said to me, he goes, oh, I just want to show that you know you can balance everything. I'm like, oh my god, that's even worse. Wow. Yeah. Um, and yeah, let's tell women they have to do everything. Yeah. Um, as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but my husband Tom's he on the flip side he gets quite offended about it because we absolutely co-parent and shit like and yeah. to be quite frank I think he does a, he actually does way more than me because because I avoid nappies at all costs but he um he kind of gets offended by it by it as well because he goes well I am a dad but no mm-hmm. one says you're a dad you know no one's kind of yes. going hey you're a dad so so it's kind of that sort of the 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 two-way street there as well, well we, we just need to get better at it um, we just need to get better. <laughs> yes, we do. And I think, I think it is a conversation. I know, I mean, obviously we've got the Me Too movement and, and there is certainly, a, you know, a, a feeling um, by some of my male colleagues that say to me it's, it's becoming, it's almost like an affront. Like they feel like they can't say anything because they think everything that they say is wrong. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is now certainly a movement around just no tolerance to getting it wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. because there is a certain level of people have just had enough and it doesn't matter how small it is because we know that the small things lead to some of these bigger issues um, within the community and, it, you know, it's just been a really long time coming. And it's funny when you look at, like, I, I don't know if you have this experience, but certainly in the United States, it is the women there are far harder, particularly at the executive level, than anything I've ever experienced here. And there is no, I guess, 
across the board, there is this certain understanding of what is politically correct and what is appropriate and what is not appropriate and no lines are crossed, Um, obviously because there is such a high level of, you know, inequities amongst other things, probably higher than here in our socioeconomics. But, God, I think, Australia, we've still got so far to go in this space, in that, you know, just that social social enterprise space. Yeah. uh, All these such a long way to go. We need to, we need to, um, yeah, I shall, I shall come. I, I know. I, I, I understand. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about all things uh, retail and certainly all things, um, you know, social enterprise and, and, and just all the wonderful things that you're doing. I mean, there's incredible initiatives happening with Flora and Fauna and we can't wait to continue to watch your journey and, and watch you achieve all of those incredible goals because, um, you know, we know that's what the consumer wants and and you're yeah. absolutely well on your way to, to doing it. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks, Dom. It's been been a pleasure as always. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.